This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Jenny. I'm Paul. I'm Brian. And we're talking about 1984 by George Orwell. Yes. It, w- it was a interesting experience to listen to the audio book. I had read the book years ago and decided I should listen to the audio book in preparation for the podcast because, well, this is the SSF audio p- podcast and I wanted to see how it unspooled in an audio format and I was pleasantly surprised. Which one did you go for? Uh, the Audible one. Uh, is that by um, Recorded Books? Was it Michael Pritchard, I think? Yeah, I believe so. English accent and narrator. Yeah, I think he's he's pretty good. That has an appendix on it too. The appendix that's in the regular book. I'm not sure all the audiobooks do that. Oh. It's kind of strange though to to have the book finish and then to keep listening to the appendix. <laughs> uh just like sort of pick up right from there. Usually when you finish a novel, you can see the novel's end is coming. Whereas in an audiobook, you know, you've got like I don't know, half an hour left, and suddenly the book is over. No, it's true. We've got a. We've been listening to a great audiobook of uh, Lord of the Rings, and they don't include the volumes of appendices at the end. Yeah, it, it would. It's. I mean, it's nice to have it there uh, for completeness' sake. But there's this. You know, this is the thing with a with a ebook too. I understand is that you know part of the experience of reading a novel or any book, I guess, but especially a novel, is that you know when the end is coming because you can feel it in your right hand. Uh-huh. The, the thickness of the pages is is declining. And I know there's some exceptions, like when publishers put, like, the next, you know, three chapters of the next book in the series or something at the end, and you get this false sense that you've, you're, you're, you're not near the end yet. But um, in an audiobook, it doesn't... You know, usually there's no chapters telling on-screen chapters telling you where you are in the book. It's just you can see the time, and um, it makes a. I think in this case, it makes it um, even more dreamlike. And I don't know if you guys noticed this, but that was the theme on this reading for me is is how dreamlike the book is. Hmm. Did you know? You guys notice that? I noticed when we when he reaches war. Room 101 is like there's half an hour left. Like there's a half hour of Room 101. I don't remember that. So there was a disjointing of time when suddenly there's the novel's over. It's like you're waking yeah. up in the dream, and then you have this essay appendix on Newspeak. Like, exactly. whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> See, I've oh. been reading Infinite Jest all summer, so I treated it like a footnote. I stopped what I was doing, I went and read the appendix, and then I came back. <laughs> but you're reading the paper book, right? Right. Or the e-book, e-text? No, I have this old Signet classic version, just like the one I read when I was a child. A child? How old were you when you first read 1984? I was 12. <laughs> oh my, that's a good time. Already a member my... of the Junior Anti-Sex League. <laughs> <laughs> I had my sash. <laughs> that's right. No, I, is there is there a senior anti-sex league? Not marriage. <laughs> I don't think there is, right? No, remember the 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 goal. It 
it's too successful. The junior anti-sex league is so successful. There's no need for it to have a. Yeah. I you have to have uh, a, a, a sex drive in in 1971 to make some babies to repopulate. Oh, that's right. Uh, Jesse, I, yeah. I I had a similar experience, but a little different. I've I've read this, you know, every couple of years. I mean, I've taught the book. I've written about it. I. Um, and one of the things that struck me about rereading it this week was uh, the the huge emphasis on memory. Oh yeah, that Winston is just. I mean, I, I don't I don't mean his his professional work um, of destroying the past and remaking it, but the just every page he falls into the past and uh, and and all those memories build up as a as a dialogue with the present and, and, and his obsession with the past. And, um, it's it it really changed my reading of the book. Um, just just thinking about this, not as a science fiction work or, or even as a dystopia, but just this this man, massively out of time and constantly going back. I mean, it happens even the the terrible terrible finale when he's at the Chestnut Tree Cafe. Mm. Even then, he's racked by memories, and the memories are the same kind of the past. You know, back to the last well, memory he has is that of, of playing snakes and ladders with his mom. Oh, and not to mention that, you know, that that cafe is, you know, where the the three traders go right. earlier in the book. Right. Um, and, of course, there's three traders there later, right? Yep. Mm. Uh, there's Julia, there's him and O'Brien, who, although we see him as a monster, he he was corrupted long ago, too. Well, there's there's also, the three is important because, I mean, the one that you have O'Brien who, who magically has that photograph with him in room, in uh, the torture chamber. But also there's an echo, I guess, I mean, not to get too too ahead of things, but so much of 1984 is this vision of, of the Soviet Union as applied to, to Britain. And in Stalin's career, there's this key point where he defeats a trio of people, uh, Kamenev, Zinoviev, and one more. Um, and Trotsky? Uh, no. No, that's Goldstein. That's very different. Uh, right, yeah. Um, and and they go through the process that Rutherford et al. Uh, do as well, where they get um, they, they have the show trials, the the rehabilitation, um, and uh, and they ultimately uh, ultimately get defeated. Um, it, and it was uh, and there's a whole bunch of them sound like that, but that, tr- that that trinity of the three of them was always uh, very important um, in in Soviet history. Um, so there was that one echo there. There's um, I I I always try and look at the influence of things as well. So I, I spread out and I was thinking is what else is you know 1984 has been so ingrained into our culture. It's such a good book in that it does its job so well, right? It's so effective. Um, I, I watched The Running Man. You guys remember that movie from the 80s? Yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty terrible movie in in many respects. But it's kind of like a prole version of 1984 because huh. it's it's set it's like the it's it could be in the world of 1984. I think it's set in 2017, so it's a, it's a you know it's set in our future uh, as 1984 was set in their future and or uh, the people of 1949's future. But um, it's got Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, starts off as you know a a worker for the state who uh, gets into trouble with the state for refusing an order. And then later on, he's shown doing the explicit thing that they told him to do. 
even though that's not what happened, right? They edit the video so that it looks like he, he's the one who killed a bunch of people. And then uh, he's forced to play this game. And in the game, we, we see, you know, cutscenes between the, the, the fights. The audience has shown uh, previous winners, right, of the uh-huh. of Running Man. And if you can escape through the Running Man, if you can get through it to the end, then you, you get, uh, you know, a chance at... Um, you know, a pardon or something like that. But fabulous prizes, including the Running Man home game. But uh, <laughs> you can get a pardon. And there's three guys. And one of them is, you know, something, somebody, somebody, and Haddad. And they have sort of distinctive names so that you can remember later on when they find the dead bodies of these three guys who they had previously shown, you know, frolicking on the beach in Hawaii. Look, they're still alive. And yet, no, they're dead. They're they were killed, and that video evidence, you know, goes down the memory hole. Oh, I see. I thought you were going to go in a completely different direction when you mentioned Running Man. Um, How so? One of the things that, that caught my eye this time was the brutality of people um, in oh, the entertainment. Sure. Uh, there's this part, I don't know what edition you guys have. Right near the beginning, the film. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going. Where uh, The first thing that uh, Winston writes is, um, you know, last night of the flicks, all war films. Audience much amused by shots of a huge, great fat man trying to swim away with a helicopter after him. And then mm-hmm. later on, um, a mother and child get machine gunned and bombed. It was a wonderful shot of a child's arm going up, 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 right up into the air. A helicopter with a camera in its nose must have followed it up, and there was a lot of applause from the party seats. I mean, just the, the, the yeah, sheer... She was a Jewess, too, right? Yeah. yeah. And it was oh, it's it, it's that that brutality of 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 the people enjoying the defeat of their enemies, uh-huh. reveling in the defeat of their enemies is frightening. And the crushing of of weakness and because those are refugees, they they weren't the soldiers that they're taught to hate. And then later on, you get the um, the terrible children who are so upset they couldn't go to the hanging. You know. They, yep. Oh my God! In that, if in that, that's that's really improved. Actually, you know, you can't usually say the book is better than, but in the video uh, in the 1954 TV movie uh, starring P- Peter Cushing, uh-huh. when he he goes to Mrs. Parsons' uh, uh-huh. house, she goes into the he goes in to fix the sink, and there's a little boy and a little girl wearing the spy uniform. Right. You know, you actually get to see the spy uniform. And she starts haranguing the her mom and her brother and her brother and the sister harangue. Harangue's too weak a word. I don't know, almost like assaulting verbally, like literally <laughs> assaulting mm. everyone in the room. And it was like, oh, my God, this it was frightening. Those kids were such good actors. I was like, no, this is, this is why I don't want to have children. Oh my God. <laughs> you know what? That's one thing that stuck out to me more this time around that I didn't remember in all of my other readings was Winston's own memories of himself as a child and how terrible he was. I mean, he yeah. may have killed his sister basically by yeah. stealing her chocolate. Yeah. He did kill his sister. I, I think that we're led to imply he didn't see it. But right. He never, or he's blocked it because, like, the whole point of memory, right? We don't really know right. what he the remembers. Right. And we 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 know what happened if we think hard about it. And we don't want to, right? Right. Because 
Where did that that hatred and or not disgust his 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 bowels turn to water when he sees the yeah. the rat? Mm. And we're told that the rats, if a parent leaves a child unattended, the rats mm-hmm. and they come out. Mm-hmm. So he and lived his whole life this way. Yep. Well, and yeah. it was worse. That was during the um, and when he was a child. That was during right after the Civil War and the nuclear war era. Uh, and he describes starvation. I mean, not not bad food like they get in the present of 1984, but but you know, literal starvation. Mm-hmm. And then his mother gets taken away. And then he sees her again. Isn't that isn't that horrible? Remember in in the detention. Well, there's he a woman who says, "Yes, right. It's, it could be her." My name is Smith. And, she says, "I could be your mother." That's right, and he and she could. Well, that's the, the great name of Smith is the you know the John Doe, the Everyman. Yeah, and the terrible, terrible irony of being named like Winston Churchill. <laughs> yeah, I mean that awful scene where where O'Brien props him up in front of the mirror. Look at you! You're a bag of decay. You know, he pulls a tooth out of his mouth. You're the oh, last, last it's man. It's real horror. I, actually, I, we're talking about the, the Peter Cushing movie. I I'm actually pretty fond of the 1984 movie um you know having uh, richard burton as o'brien i haven't I, seen that one i oh, I, oh. I, I, or if i did i saw it at the time you know i i, I really recommend I seen it recently beautiful casting i mean uh burton is great but also john hurt looks like he was born to play winston smith yeah he yeah. does you just you just want an alien to burst out of his chest to cheer him up <laughs> <laughs> it would be an improvement well, yeah. if I can ask you guys, um, what do you what do you make of this book as science fiction? You know, we're reading it for SFF Audio. Um, what, how does it fit into your science fictional conceptions? Jenny's going to talk. Oh well, I just put it in dystopia. I, I wouldn't call it science fiction as much as speculative fiction. No, it's social science fiction, totally. Sure. Is All the things. All the things that could go wrong if, 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 you know. Yeah. So it's that warning. Mm-hmm. If this goes on, which is actually well, the name of a short story. Right, the Heinlein. But is yep. this really science fiction? It, 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 it doesn't feel like science fiction, does it? Especially with that backward looking to the past. The, the, yeah, the arre- all the motifs. Right, the arresting of technology and progress, the basically trying to make it a fixed point in time and, and a world not even as good as the one he had grown up grown up and it's it's very literary <laughs> it, it, is, it is very literary it, it 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 is not as science fictional as even animal farm in some ways which is uh, which is almost fantasy. pure allegory yeah we have just fantasy and allegory are you are you referring i'm just curious i was, I was thinking about this this morning are you are you refer, the, the fixed notion of 1984's future are you referring to the way Goldstein's book, quote Goldstein's book, describes that as a deliberate policy, or are you referring to a kind of failure of imagination of the book? I'm, 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 referring, I'm referring to the, the deliberate policy of, mm-hmm. of Oceana to basically arrest history and technology forever. And, I mean, and we see that in them keep, we've always been at war with East Asia, that the right. continual rewriting of history to make it always seem the present's always been what was and always will be. And science has stopped. 
I mean, it's just the science the of torture. For the most part, yeah. Science of uh-huh. torture and weapons. And surveillance. <laughs> but you also have to remember at the end, it's, uh, the, that was the really chilling part, right? Was w- when we're getting the definitions of how the words work and how the language will work, which I, 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 I'm hopeful that, that that's not actually true. I, I have some reason to believe that, that if we tried to do that to the language, it wouldn't work. But uh, even so, it, in the end, it says that uh, you couldn't make sentences uh, without, like, they, you collapse meanings down into different words so that you reduce the vocab. But eventually, the word party meant science, right? If you, right. Meant, if you if tried to use the word science, it would be, it would be you know, uh, insock. Insoc. Right. Yeah. I am insocking. I am doing science. I'm an insocker. Yeah. Have any of you read The Languages of Pal by Jack Vance? Yeah. yeah. A long time ago. I, yeah. Jack Vance is social science fiction. Right. The, the Language of Pal revolves a plot around cha- using language to change a culture and society. And now having re-listened to 1984, he definitely was influenced by the ideas of manipulating language with, the, with, with newspeak and looking at it from a slightly different angle using an exterior culture to change another planet's culture by manipulating mm-hmm. their language. That happens in uh, Babel 17. Um, an alien a intergalactic invasion proceeds through space by uh, hacking grammar. Mm. And the, uh, the, the good guys, the military force, hires a poet, uh, <laughs> Raidra Wong, to help them um, uh, defeat the enemy. And there's this, there's this great have you guys read this? It's an amazing book. No. This is Delaney, it's, isn't it? Right yeah, it's his, yeah. Uh, I think it's his Hugo novel. Um, yeah, that's right. It came out the year I was born. What was um, the title again? Babel 17. Okay. Um, oh, I don't, it, it's, it's, it's also very short and, and quite beautiful. Um, but there's a, it's, it's a deliberate language war. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of books like this. Um, Ian Watson has a book called The Embedding, which has a similar plot. It's a hard book to find now, but um, now I, I was asking about your about your Paul where you were coming from this because I, I was I was kind of I, I was oscillating between the two reasons for this the the, the refusal of the future. Um, I dug up Isaac Asimov did a review of 1984 for the New Yorker, oh. Oh. and he has this great he loves it until he talks about science fiction and he says. Uh, Orwell was technophobic. Um, he says, uh, Orwell describes something being written with a real nib. This is, um, um, this is not science fiction, but a distorted nostalgia for past that never was. I am surprised that Orwell stopped with a steel pen, and he didn't have Winston writing with a neat goose quill. <gasps> oh, I, I think I've read this years ago, because that sounds really familiar, that, that, yeah. that Asimov calling out the pen and I was and when he when he writes that I was like that sounded familiar but I didn't make the connection at the time in the order book until you just made it right now yeah that's I must gets, have read that years ago that well it that, gets that, worse he says uh, nor was Orwell particularly prescient in the strictly social aspects of the world he was presenting with the result of the Orwellian world of 1984 is incredibly old-fashioned Orwell imagines no new vices for instance his characters are all <laughs> gin hounds and tobacco addicts and part yeah. of the horror of his picture is his eloquent description of the low quality of the gin and tobacco. He foresees no new drugs, no marijuana, no synthetic hallucinations. 
No one expects an SF writer to be precise and exact in his forecasts, but surely one would expect him to invent some new differences. Uh, yeah, well, it, that's those are the things that make it feel like it's not science fiction. It's it's like it's a science fiction book written by somebody who doesn't know what science fiction. Uh, he's looking at the past. He's looking. Mm-hmm. At, you know, he's picking up things in the world and extrapolating, thinking hard about those things, but not. Um, it's not really about 1984, right? The 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 date was very arbitrary. Really, it's it just has to be set in a time where the it's, things that are happening in 1948-49 are going to be uh, magnified. And you know, right. he's got he's got some things like World War Three's happened, right? Yep. Um, I guess that's uh, <laughs> envisioning the future. But yeah, it, it certainly and with with I mean. One of the things that we, I guess, we get used to not seeing in most science fiction is a lack of motifs. That this thing has an uncountable number of things that come up again and again, and that, in part, is one of the things that makes it very dreamlike. Um, I think so. The, the, the there's the coral, right? Yeah. That that he, he obsesses over that piece of glass, um, looking into it. It it it's a symbol of something for him. There's there's the the memories obviously um there's the the enigmatic um we will meet again in the place with with uh with no darkness with, uh, with no darkness right and they do and they do but <laughs> oh god like, that those are all the things that make me think you know it, i'm thinking is it a dream right right because you know in a in a dream you get reci- everything's recycled Things people merge and become, mm. um, you know, you've got three people at the beginning and at the end there's only two people, mm-hmm. and you say what happened along the way? Well, you know, things merge together, and and in dreams, you can have two plus two equal five. Mm-hmm. You know, dream logic. I ca- yeah, I kind of mm-hmm. want to go back to this idea though of um, the lack of imagination. I really kind of think that. I'm not sure it was that because how horrible of a world would it be where your luxuries and your vices get smaller, they get reduced to bad Mm. versions of what you used to have. And not only that, there are no new vices and Mm. your language diminishes. So instead of new concepts and new words, you get less and less of them. Your history changes and goes away. Your personal history changes and goes away. I mean, to me, it's just part of that whole theme that there is nothing new. You don't get to choose. You don't get to create. You do what's given to you, and you like it, and then you hate the things that are the other, and that's it. That's your life. I mean, that's the worst possible scenario, and Mm. there it is in this book. (laughs) It's kind of the flip side of of, uh, Huxley's Brave New Worlds that we haven't mentioned yet. Because right. they invent all these new mechanisms of control. Mm-hmm. Do, Soma. Yeah, Soma. And um, do you think, Jenny, is, this reminds me of some other dystopias. The way you describe it is beautiful. I mean, it reminds me a bit of, um, of the situation in, uh, say, Hunger Games. Um, mm-hmm. The situation of the provinces, not the capital. Um, I mean, is, can you think of other, other, other dystopias that have done this? This kind of deliberate shrinkage of experience? Well, have you read Wool by Kirsten Yeah, Kirsten Alley? 
great where example. You're limited oh, to yeah. everything that's in the silo, things that you recreate. You have to reuse everything. Yeah. And you can't move between floors very easily because nothing's automated anymore, even though right. you know they have the technology, they have computers. They have the IT department, which mm-hmm. is so cool. Yeah, but that's how you control people. You take away the things they can have. Right. I mean, they can't actually see the outside. Um, the big, the big uh, celebration is when they have, cl- is it called cleaning day? I think I so. When they, have to clean, they send out a, a, a condemned person to wipe off the lenses so they can actually glimpse the outside. And the outside looks horrible. In, uh, in 1984, the, one of the words that struck me as being, you know, describing the world, you know, was Greece. And it comes up four times. I've just done a search. Four times it comes up. But it seems like it comes up more. Yeah. And, you, you know, one of my uncles, he wrote a science fiction story uh, that has never been published or anything. But um, it, it sort of feels like this world. And the the... I guess Eric calls it transformed language. I uh-huh. think that's what he calls it anyways. But instead of it being cardboard, you know, cardboard box, it's a crudboard box. Crudboard. That's good. <laughs> crudboard, because it's made of crud, right? That's good. That's good. Um, it's a very distinctive sort of feel and sound yeah. to it. Um, it, it. Actually, a lot of the, the news speak is about euphony, right? Making the language flow. Uh-huh. But... Um, I want to read these because it just gives you the sense of the world. Winston fitted a nib into the pen holder and sucked it to get the grease off. There's grease on the pen, okay. Each of them took a greasy metal tray from a pile at the end of the counter. Right. Those are the clean trays. Yeah, they should be. A low-ceilinged, crowded room, its walls grimy with the contact of innumerable bodies, battered metal tables and chairs, placed so close together that you sat with elbows touching, bent spoons, dented trays, coarse white mugs, all surfaces greasy, grime in every crack, Mm. and a sourish composite smell of bad gin and bad coffee and metallic stew and dirty clothes. Mm. What a wonderful world. (laughs) And there's the last one. Oh, let's see. He was a monstrous man with a mane of greasy gray hair. His face pouched and seamed with the thick negroid lips. Who are they describing here? Is this... Oh, this must be Goldstein? Rutherford had been a famous caricaturist. I think it's describing... Yeah, I think it's just... At one time, he must have been immensely strong. Now his great body was sagging, sloping bulging, falling away oh, in every direction. Like a mountain. Oh, the, the language is so well. I mean, this is why you can, you know, it's it, science fiction is not known for its, um, you know, we is a really good book, but you don't say, oh, the language, the language, right? The description. Well, it's the ideas, right? Well, you mean, here the, we get, you mean Zemdotin's novel? Yeah, it's a good book. It's a very, very good book. I, and it's it's great in ideas, but I don't remember it being that uh, literary. It's a very it was literary. It just wasn't that literary. It's, it's a very different literary. I mean, I've read most of it in Russian, and it's 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 very direct, but it's also it's coming out of a really different literary moment where uh, it's heavy on symbolism and and kind of slashes of insight that um, distort you and disorient you. It's uh, 
It's but it feels a lot more like science fiction, right? The, yeah. The wall, the walls of every room are glass. Trans, trans, yeah, glass. And the, and, the, and the and the narrator is working on a giant spaceship. You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's it, it definitely has the the technology feel more. No, I agree. But the description of Scriabin's music is very poetic, so yeah. it has its moments. That was my favorite part. I, oh, I, I love the novel. I mean, it's one of my and I I love it more the more I think about how Ayn Rand pilfered it for We the Living. But, um, <laughs> no, I, and some I, say Orwell pilfered it for this book, too. Oh, yeah. Well, you, There's some proof that he'd read it before he wrote this novel. I'm, I'm working from a, uh, a giant uh, casebook. Uh, what's this? Who edited this? Uh, Irving Howe edited this. It's from Hardcore Brace. And like one-third of the book is the novel. Right? And two-thirds are all these... It's got a nice a nice chunk of sources drawn, and then there's uh, there's Huxley, and then there's M. Yacht, and um, you know a nice uh, a nice set of it, uh, a chunk from Trotsky, um, and uh, a chunk from a, a short story by Cyril Connolly Connolly called Year Nine. Um, I've not heard of that one. No, I, I think this is I think this is a beautifully beautifully written book. Um, every time, I mean it. Not that it cheers me up to read, uh, but uh, <laughs> but it's I, I love the prose and it. I mean, I whenever I teach English, I always teach uh, Orwell's uh, Politics of the English Language. It's mm. one of my favorite essays, and I know a lot of linguists hate it, but it's it's a it's a great provocative piece, and that always comes to mind the the, the incredible precision here, the the and and the, the really the really delicate use of some of these words. You but might I, say. I do, Go ahead. Go ahead. You might say that this is a case casebook study of him taking that essay and putting it into practice. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's why I, I I love the appendix at the end. Actually, it feels totally right to me because you know, he's so. It's it's his it's, Tolkien working out the you know the language of the elves, right? That's his huh? his his take on you know this. It's the other thing that I, I want to get into about why it's so dreamlike and why also it works on a, a. I think it's you know like it's it works. It's more popular than we, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, I I also want to sort of you know the other movie I was thinking about. I didn't want rewatch it, um, and but I did I did think quite a bit about it. Is um and the and the comic book is the Alan Moore uh, V for Vendetta. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, sort of the modern generation's um, 1984. It, it, it is the same story, essentially. It could be set in the same world, or at least somewhere along the track of the same world. The the party, I think, has a different name. It's Norse, Norse Fire instead of yeah. Ingsoc, but Memory Hole fixed that, you know? Yep. Get a few writers on it, and we'll, we'll, we'll have everybody remembering it always being... In sock, instead of being Norse fire at some point, but the 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 way we works is it didn't get distributed right. Nobody nobody read it very much. Uh, it had one printing in English, and then uh, it never was printed in Russian until much later, where it might have done some <laughs> good, yeah. right? I, you in Ukraine, Ukraine or something? I can't remember. Yeah, I've got a, sort of a circuitous. Publishing history. I've got a 1970s square-shaped, low-quality paperback of it in Russian, with like a crud paper version. Crud paper, <laughs> it is. It is crud paper. Right down with Goldstein. Crud paper. That's oh. great. 
Um, well, I, I do think this is science fiction in, in a few ways, and um, uh, one of them is, is the transformed language. I mean, it, it's, it's open. I mean, the book is so profoundly about language, you know, the, mm. um, that, that, that's, that's a key point. Uh, uh, another is, I mean, it's, it's, it's things like, I don't know if you've, if you've caught that there's, this, there's these different strata of languages within the book. Um, mm-hmm. The proles all have their own dialect which is like 1930s London, you know, yeah. whenever they speak, even when they're paraphrased, uh, they're, they have a very, very distinct voice. The party members have a different voice. But then there's Newspeak, which is another one. And then we get this weird kind of hybrid shorthand crossed with Newspeak of the, uh, the internal communiques that, uh, that O'Brien works with and that Winston works with. You know, these little pneumatic tube chits that are like... Well, someone online compared them to text. It's military language, really. It's <laughs> it's what they use. You know, if you've seen that show, Generation Kill. Yeah. You know, that is exactly how how it all sounds, right? It's, it's military. It's, and it's also bureaucratic. You know, you get yeah, um, exactly. Well, that's it's the same thing. Bu- military language is bureaucratic language. It's just bureaucratic language for soldiers. Well, the yeah. homicidal instinct. I mean, many plenty mal quoted chocolate rectify. Yeah, reporting BB day order double plus good refs on persons rewrite full wise up sub antifiling. I mean, it's, I, I love, it's, you know, and part of this reminded me of Dune. I mean, not just because Dune has a, a stack of appendices. Yeah, battle language. And remember how, like, Count Fenring and his wife have that, like, their own secret private language they use to talk to each other. And um, so, I mean, all the transformed language puts me in the, in the, in the science fiction mode. But also, the, the technology. I guess this reminded me of the great, great dystopian movie Brazil, which also mm. had all the retro technology. There's something that's very influenced by 1984. Yeah, oh right? yeah, and it actually contemporary, isn't it? From about 1984, <laughs> 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 1982 or something. But, um, but it's you, the retro technology is described like an intentional community. I mean, there's all it's it's the worlding of the book is really meticulous. I mean, it's, it's pedagogically very sound. He, the first chapter front loads you with this, this unbelievable torrent of new terms and, and new technology. I mean, it's a kind of, it's, a, it's, it's, it's carefully done this trick to give you all these things in a hurry without boring you. You know, we get the first few pages, it's the first line, right? It's the, oh, the 13th hour, right? Oh, what a, it, yep. well, it's also a parody of Chaucer. Right? It was a bright, cold day in April. You know, so you think Juan and April, right? The beginning of Chicanabry Tales. Mm-hmm. And instead of April being the cruelest month that breeds, instead <laughs> it's cold and the clocks are striking 13. And it's a gothic hint. But we get Victory Mansions. We get Big Brother. No, no. We get the television. Everything's telescreen. Victory. Everything, Victory means shit, right? Right. <laughs> mansions. Shit, gin. Shit, gin. But then we get... We get Insoc, Shit we, get, cigarettes. we get Thought Police, we get Ministry of Truth, Airstrip One, Oceania, I'm on page two now. Yeah. Uh, Airstrip One is, I mean, that, that is the right. biggest tweak to, to Winston Churchill ever, right? Right, right. That is the biggest tweak to the nose of Winston Churchill. What did you do to win World War II? You turned us into a colony of yeah. our colony. Right. We get uh, Mini True, Newspeak, Mini Love, Mini, pl- mini Packs, Mini Plenty. Victory Gin, because there's your shit gin for you. Victory mm-hmm. Cigarettes, um, Speak Right. And there's a, the, the Speak Right, yeah. And the Ink Pencil. And the Memory Hole, too. Oh, I'm only on the third or fourth page now. 
Yep. I mean, it's it's really, you know, the two minutes hate junior anti sex league novel writing machines, the inner party as opposed to something else manual. Go- I mean, so he just dumps all this information on you, and Orwell is so good that it doesn't mm-hmm. stymie you. It's not like the opening crawl of a bad Star Wars movie. I mean, <laughs> and, then, and then pedagogically, he keeps returning to these, refining them, reminding you of what they are. Yeah. You know, like when, when he reads the, later on when Winston reads the uh, bombing, or sorry, the, uh, the section about war in Goldstein's book, the first thing, when he stops, the first thing he hears is a rocket bomb falling, just as a reminder. I mean, I... I all this careful worlding is not the kind of thing you do if you're writing a present. No, it is no. a masterwork, and it is a, in a certain sense, it's a perfect book um, because it does exactly what I think. We get inside the mind of what George Orwell wants us to get, and, and we don't, you know, everyone is transformed by this book who, who reads it, you know, and the words enter their mind. I th- if if the words enter your mind when you read this book, it transforms you, mm-hmm. and it, it's like an inoculation, like uh, you know, real science fiction is. Uh, even if it's not a, you know, this is. It's easy to say, you know, I, I think I tweeted last night uh, about that. I said, watch uh, watch 1984 on your phone. Well, NSA watches you watch it. Right, it's it's right. we're not living in 1984. If if you want to look at a place that is more like that, you can go to North Korea. That is much more like 1984 than anything else on Earth right now. That is a place where everyone is a slave, and we're living in concentration. You know, the, there's a giant concentration camp, and there's sub concentration camps within it, and there are inner party members and outer party members, and right. and right. the proles. Like, although they're not proles, they're serfs, right? So what we're not living in that and we're not living in V for Vendetta but if you read this book you come away saying you know I think I understand why certain trends are bad trends inoculation that's beautiful that's a a great term for this this is the gives you it is real inoculation a little dose of dystopia to help you build up your defenses against it yeah it does the job that it you know it does the job that that you want it to, that it needs to be done. So without getting too political, um, there's a, a hacker magazine called 2600. I don't know if you guys have seen this or read this. Um, and um, uh, I hope I'm not going to... Oh, I won't get you in trouble for mentioning it because it's, it's well known. It's pretty old. But the editor's name is Emmanuel Goldstein. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> nice. And no, you'll see won't. him in a lot of places. We won't get in trouble because I'm going to speak to the NSA for a moment, if you don't mind. Well, aren't we all? Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, I just do it intentionally these days because just like uh, I'm on page six in my book, how often or in what system the thought police plugged in on any individual wire was guesswork. It was even conceivable that they watched everybody all the time. You had to live. Peter Snowden told us this. (laughs) You had to live and did live from habit that became instinct and the assumption that every sound you made was overheard and except in darkness, every movement scrutinized. So I just thought I would welcome our political overlords to our conversation about 1984. <laughs> Hello, Utah. There you go. But I, I want see, I think it's I think it's weird that you said I don't want to get political. That's what this book is. And yeah. I, I, when I suggested this book, 
uh, Scott reacted uh, by saying it was too political. He wanted to read it, but it was too political. And I was thinking, but that's the point. That is the point. It's the whole point. This isn't a book you read for. It's not, uh, you know, a porno sack book, whatever it's, you know, those. It's not a pleasure book. You don't read it because you, you know, you want to pass some time on the beach. It's not beach reading. It's not, um, you know, get me in the Christmas spirit reading. It's, <laughs> it's get me uh, a better understanding of, you know, why why we should be skeptical but political. Right. Uh, uh, Makes you angry. Realities. Have any so of you it, seen The Lies of Others? No, Not I'm, yet. I've been, it's in my Netflix queue, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's a very good movie. It's set in mid-1980s East Germany. It's about an intelligence officer who's basically spying on a couple of people and basically how he gets wrapped up in their lives. Right, yeah, that, that did so, look good. So it's the other side of the surveillance state that 1984 and the whole NSA thing NSA is talking about, but basically from their perspective, and it occurred to me as I was listening to 1984, what are the the lives of the people who are watching watching Winston and everything else all the time really like? Mm. We we don't get a sense of that. Orwell Denver goes into that. They they seem a little too hyper-competent because they know everything about Winston, which seems... Yeah, well, that's the dream, right? So... I, I I gotta say, you know, this is not real. <laughs> this is totally what makes it so dreamlike. Is that remember in the scene right when they're getting caught? They're in the bedroom. Uh, well, let's yeah. see if I can bring that part up. Well, we are the dead. You are the dead. The dead. That's right. So such a great line. We are the dead. Let's see if I can bring it. And you get all those repetitions. Let me me read this because this is really important because it's not just what they say; it's also what they think. We are the dead, he said. We, we, oh, well, wait, this is the wrong one, I think. That, that, that's a recurring motif again. Let's see. Ah, here it goes. We are the dead, he said. We are the dead, echoed Julia dutifully. <laughs> you are the dead, said the iron voice behind them. They sprang apart. Winston's entrails, his, his guts are always turning to water. <laughs> Winston's entrails seemed to have turned to ice. He could see the white all around the irises of Julia's eyes. Her face had turned a milky yellow. The smear of rouge that was still on each cheekbone stood out sharply, almost as though unconnected with the skin beneath. You are the dead, repeated the iron voice. And it is, uh, is it like an echo, somebody playing back your own, your own voice? That's very dreamlike. It was behind the picture, breathed Julia. It, she's already determined that it was there before, right? It's, uh-huh. It's so so shy. It's like such a stark image here. It was behind the picture, said the voice. <laughs> Remain exactly where you are. Make no movement until you are ordered. It was behind. It, the it is the voice. Right? It is the voice, and the it refers to itself. It was starting. It was starting at last, and they're so happy. They could do nothing except stand gazing into one another's eyes to run for life, to get out of the house before it was too late. No such thought occurred to them. Unthinkable to disobey the iron voice from the wall. There was a snap as though a catch had been turned back and a crash of breaking glass. The picture had fallen to the floor, uncovering the telescreen behind it. So how did the picture break off the wall? Apparently this TV can press its own buttons out or something. It makes no sense. Ah. If, if, now they can see us, said Julia. This is totally like a dream. Now we can see you, said the voice. Stand out in the middle of the room. Stand back stand back to back. Clasp your hands behind your heads. Do not touch one another. 
they're supposed to stand back to back but not touch. They were not touching, but it seemed to him that he could feel Julia's body shaking, or perhaps it was merely the shaking of his own. He couldn't, so they're, they're merging, right? He couldn't just stop his teeth from chattering, but the knees were beyond his control. There was a sound of trampling boots below. Inside the house and outside, the yard seemed to be full of men. Something was being dragged across the stones. The woman singing had stopped abruptly. There was a long rolling clang as though the wash tub had been flung across the yard, and then a confusion of angry shouts, which ended in a yellow pain. The house is surrounded, said Winston. The house is surrounded, said the voice. I see what you mean now, Jesse. It, 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 it does have that sort of dream logic and dream flow of things getting echoed back at yourself and reflected rather than an actual, what, what, what the, the secret police would actually do. And, and well, why, why wouldn't you they run? Wouldn't say, they wouldn't echo what you're saying. Exactly. Right? They would just, He's saying it, and it's echoing back to himself. And that's remember, every character in a dream is you, right? You're generating everything in a dream. And I've talked about this before, but I think it's, it's very interesting. In dreams, I, know when, I, I almost always know when I'm dreaming because I dream about books. I pick up books in <laughs> dreams all the time. I can see the cover. I can see what it, the title is. Yes. But when I open it up, I realize suddenly that I'm in a dream because I cannot generate the text as fast as I can read. Oh. Right? So what happens wow. is I can read the first line. I can read the first line of the text, and then the next line gets somehow unreadable. And then I said, but I don't need, I, I, I'm a person who doesn't wear glasses. I don't need glasses. I've got good eyes. So I don't have, you know, it's not that my glasses are missing. And it used to be that it would suddenly, uh, you know, become faded or some, or it would be changed to another language that I don't recognize the symbols for, Right. But the problem is, is I've become so used to it over the years, I just realized, aha, dream. Damn. <laughs> that book looked like it was going to be really good. Oh, <laughs> wow. I, it happens to me all the time when I can remember my dreams. I know I'm dreaming because I pick up books. And you cannot generate the world of a book as much as quickly as you can generate the world of a room or a, of a forest. Now, this is uncanny, because I have a similar experience, but it's, it's much worse. Um, I dream of books that don't exist, yeah. and, I, and I feel them. I know them. I'm like, oh, I, I remember as a kid, here's this great sequel to Ringworld, and it's in my hands. I saw the cover. <laughs> it's not that it's great. It's not great. That's the thing. You know, or, uh, and this Sandman, this shows up in it, where... Uh, Dream has a dream of books that are, that are sequels um, that don't exist and completed series. And uh, it's heartbreaking. I, I often wake up with my hands clutching at the air because I know yeah. I've got this. Um, you know, it's a, uh, okay. Two, I, I'm struck by your dream argument. And I'm, I'm really, it's making me rethink parts of the book. And I guess there's, there's two pieces of evidence I would add to yours in support of it. Um, so much you can uh, you can like look at so many things, but the, the, let's hear yours. Well, one is is the and this really bothers me actually. Um, this is early on. There's the uh, uh, the glimpse of the the space with no darkness, um, and Winston says years ago. How long was it? Seven years it must be. He dreamed that he was walking through a pitch dark room, and someone sitting on one side of him had said as he passed. We shall meet in the place where there is no darkness. 
It was said very quietly, almost casually, a statement, not a command. He'd walked on without pausing. What was curious was at that time, in the dream, the words had not made much impression on him. It was only later, by degrees, that they had seemed to take on significance. He could not now remember whether it was before or after having the dream that he had seen O'Brien for the first time, nor could he remember when he had first identified the voice as O'Brien's. But at any rate, the identification existed. It was O'Brien who had spoken to him out of the dark. And so that then becomes real. Uh, mm-hmm. When he and Julia go to O'Brien's house, he uses that phrase, and O'Brien nods. And then, of course, it, it ends up being the room with no darkness, the room of blood. Yeah, we, we can imagine that O'Brien's just so slick, that he, he, or, or so well-informed, that he's, you know, he's been listening to everything. And, right. You know, being updated on everybody's... Uh, I think, doesn't O'Brien have an assistant? Uh, you know, the, maybe that guy's job is to... The, the butler, to, yeah. What's his name? No, it was the butler. That's what the name? Martin Butler. Martin. Martin, Martin, right. Which made me think of uh, Martin Luther, actually. But, um, <laughs> but, that, but you know, it... it that that blurring is really strange. Where kind of the dream seeps into reality, and you wonder. There's a there's an offhand line where Winston says, you know, the worst thing is you can't control what you say when you're sleeping. And and one of the other guys, he informed he he he's informed himself, right? He informed on himself in his dreams. Right. Right. Um, so I think there's one piece, and then later on, uh, that wasn't Parsons, was it? Uh, Par- Parsons' kid turns him in, right? Yeah, th- th- those yeah, horrible uh, kids yeah. did that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the second yeah. piece is the the book keeps verging on uncanny valley, um, huh. because uh, the new generation gets creepier and creepier. There's there's a guy in the canteen that keeps quacking, right? and and he's just endlessly going on. And in fact, <laughs> this hilarious bit where they call it quack speak or quack talk. Right. Uh, which I love, but but there's. Um, there's, here, let me just grab this. Um, it's page 37, uh, about six of the way in, um, where he's watching someone speak, and uh, Winston says, whatever it was that he was saying, you could be certain that every word of it was pure orthodoxy, pure ingsoc. As he watched the eyeless face with the jaw moving up and down. See, it's, it's eyeless because he's wearing glasses, like almost everybody is in the book which is often an interesting sign. I mean, Eric tells me this is the sign that your vision is blocked or distorted. <laughs> um, and it's true. And it's interesting that O'Brien is the one who's always taking his glasses off. That's his sign of who he is, right? But so this, this guy, he's watching the eyeless face, the jaw moving rapidly up and down. Winston had a curious feeling this was not a real human being, but some kind of dummy. It was not the man's brain that was speaking. It was his larynx. The voice that was coming out of him consisted of words, but it was not speech in the true sense. It was a noise uttered in unconsciousness. You know, it's, it's pure uncanny valley. We're watching a puppet. You know, we're watching Tom Hanks in um, Polar Express. You know, we're watching a bad 3D rendering. And because Orwell is so brilliant as a writer, all these words set it up. You know, the eyeless face, the jaw, the larynx, not he speaking. You know, you disassociate it here. So again, I, I think, I mean, it's very powerful. There's a sense of literal dehumanization. But also, I think for your, your dream thesis, um, this, um, this, this really, fits, really in, fits in that we have, that we uh, have a dream-like dream. logic operating in everyday life. The other, the other um, thing that I was thinking, you know, I, I try not to, 
I, I didn't go and do a lot of. Uh, this is one of those books where if you want to, you can find a, a million people's theories on it, and I didn't want to do that because I knew that they'd all probably been done before, and I don't want to say all right. I'd rather just do it as a podcast and talk to you guys, and hopefully we'll come up with a good conversation that makes us all better people. Um, and the other one that I was thinking about is the book that, that Goldstein picks up. Yeah. Or sorry, that Goldstein wrote that really is written by O'Brien, sort of, um, that I think is really written by uh, the main character also. Because in a lot of good books, a lot of really, you know, high-end books, and what I mean by that is, you know, you remember them, memorable books. Fahrenheit 451 is a book about books, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um 1984 is a book about books in in a certain way and they Fahrenheit 451 is certainly uh could be like the American end of 1984 in a certain way you know they do things slightly different in that province um rather, rather than in Airstrip 1 uh-huh. uh is Airstrip 1 the cap- you know is is London the capital of Oceania I, I they- it's hard to say right it's it should be based on you know how much uh, how many ministries are going on there, but mm. but O'Brien certainly not you know the inner party certainly doesn't look like it's big enough to you know control all of Oceania from there. So it'd be a dangerous spot for the capital. Just you know just a few miles yeah, away from Eurasia. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of surrounded. So it, you know you can't look too deeply into it because it just doesn't work if you do that. But um, Think about, uh, you know, V for Vendetta's got the book, right? Uh, the the value of the book, not a specific one. I don't think maybe Stephen Fry's character in the movie has uh, has one particular book, but I think he's just got a whole bunch of books. And he, yeah, he says he keeps all of them, right? He keeps the smut and he keeps the mm. well-written things and he keeps everything, which is, is nice. Fahrenheit 451, the value of the book. In this case, we've got a book that, I believe the way it's described, it tells you only things you already knew, which is a very dream thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's uh, um, Winston's praise of it. The best and, books tell you what you already know. Right. And and the other, you know, this depth of a book within a book thing mm-hmm. makes things so rich. So mm-hmm. why is Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle considered his best book? And I, arguably it is his best book. Well, it's about a book. The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. Oh, heavy. The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, which is about a book about the world that he lives in that's actually our world. It's, but it's a know, funhouse mirror of our world. Cause the, it is right. a funhouse mirror, right? So it, that's the, that's the ex, like, when you're reading it, you're hoping that it's going to be our world. But then when you find out that it's not exactly our world, that makes it even better, Right. Because no, you, you you're assuming that it's going to be a right. when you find out that it's a it's a world in which w- the Nazis lost World War Two and that the Japanese lost World War Two. You think, oh, that's our world, and then no, it's not. No. Which means every book is a you know of this kind is a book about a world that's not you know it it sort of gives the possibilities of other books. Well, it's like you know whenever you watch a movie, movies include other movies as, as supercharged moments, you know, little nods here and there. Um, you know, like in um, um, 12 Monkeys. What's the Hitchcock movie they go to see? Is it Vertigo, I think? Uh, yeah, it's Vertigo. They reference that, that weird problem of personal identity. Um, 
you know, in um, uh, we were just watching uh, Dark City again for the fiftieth time. God, what a terrific, terrific film! Yeah, and um, they keep passing by a movie theater where a movie is playing called Book of Dreams. Well, it's mm. it's appropriate for the for the movie, but it's also a movie that Cox kept trying to make. Um, the um, so whenever you look at a, a novel, you know you keep looking at novel writing or book writing being super significant, and and we have Goldstein's book, which I want to come back to, but we also begin the book the plot action. The whole story is set in motion by Winston writing right. a book. There's the second book, right? Uh-huh. The the book or the the main book, the book, the first book that he's writing, which is is it the same book? I notice in, when he reads the Goldstein book, he ends in certain weird places, right? He's reading right. a chapter, and then he's just about to find something out, which means we're just about to find something out, and then it, you know, some, he has to go to work or something. Something yeah. takes him out of that, and then he skips around. Well, as a as a book per, as book people, I'm sure you guys love this one spot. I one of the things I love about dystopias is they always always include little utopian moments, little glimpses of beauty and sweetness. I mean, I always look for these, and they're they're inevitably there. And when he first starts reading the book, um, you get a paragraph of political prose, and then Winston stopped reading chiefly in order to appreciate the fact that he was reading in comfort and safety. He was alone. No telescreen, no ear at the keyhole, no nervous impulse to glance over his shoulder, cover the page with his hand. The sweet summer air played against his cheek. So it's summer, right? Not April. Mm-hmm. From somewhere far away, there floated the faint sounds of children, and presumably those aren't betraying children. Right? In the room... It's golden place. Exactly right? which he dreams about. Right. Right. And he visits? Yes, with Julia. He settled deeper into the armchair and put up his feet on the fender. It was bliss. It was eternity. Suddenly, as one sometimes does with a book of which one knows one will ultimately read and reread every word, he opened a different <laughs> place and found himself in the third. I mean, as a book person, I just found this to be almost pornographic. It was just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. That's something of the porno machines, but a real good pornographic. But, but oh, that brings us back, though, because Julia is an author, right? She works at the novel writing machines, <laughs> and she also works, what do they call the porno uh, sect they, in the house? They call it like, the smut house or the muck house. Um, yeah, I- Remember. And they're all busy. You know, they're, these guys are all writers. They're all and Winston, of course, is this weird, evil. It's got a kaleidoscope, though, right? So they're yeah. not right. They're the writers, like you know, Robert Silverberg and Lawrence Block and Donald Westlake and mm-hmm. Marion Zimmer Bradley. They wrote a whole bunch of books before they wrote under their own name, right? And they're all pornographic books. And what they do is they take a. They were actually given a recipe, right? The, the the publishing houses. They say, "This is what we want. We want. I want you to write a book that uh, is a, set in the college, right? College sex. And then there's another right. one, lesbian sex. And and all they do is they just sort of put a whole bunch of things together, and and then that's the book is done. And, write it in a weekend. And for right? a for a novelist, this is this is this is infernal. You know, this is the worst thing. And I, I guess maybe you know that it's it is. I mean, it's it's a horrible thing. Um, but it's also it's also kind it's of anti technological. It's also it's, practice, though. And those guys ended up being very good writers, I right? So I can't find it right now. But there's a, a John Varley short story. It's like ten pages 
um, where he uh, he talks about people who can't stop writing. I think it's called the processed word, mm-hmm. and um, and the technology will make them write more and more. And in the story is a is a letter to him from someone signed S K. And he says, I'm, uh, I'm a horror writer, but I just can't stop writing. I keep making more stuff. You know, um, you know, Donald Westlake, that's me. That's one of my pseudonyms. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, he named all these people. I just can't stop. Please help me. I'm out of control. Um, and then there's that, but back to the book, there's that awful uh, work pressure they have when they, uh, when they f- switch from East Asia to, um, Oce- uh, to uh, Eurasia in the middle of the speech and they have to rewrite everything. Mm-hmm. This is this is this is a it's a it's a it's a hilarious in a very grim, almost Russian way moment. Um, this is chapter nine, where they're at this giant rally, and that fits in with the dream too. It think, does. think about any, when you're you're having a dream and something like you know what I say always happens to me. You say, but I. I mean, dreaming, that doesn't end the dream necessarily. You don't wake up necessarily. It's only the ones where you do wake up that you remember it, generally. Right. Or the total, but the tenor shifts. It's it horrific. keeps going, right? Right. It keeps going, and it has to keep going. Well, the thing that impressed Winston in looking back was the speaker had switched from one line to the other, actually in mid-sentence, not only without a pause, but without even breaking the syntax. And bam! And he's, okay, it's no longer that. It's now... Oceania was at war with East Asia. Oceania had always been at war with East Asia. And so they have to go into work, and you know, the, the Ministry of Truth is busy trying to redesign the past again to keep that going. Who, who does the real, you know, like Winston Smith is a, he, he works on fixing the newspapers, right? But who does the actual newspaper reporting? I'm thinking that there's nobody. It's just all, like, in the book it says it's all, you know, it's all static, really, and mm. whether there's whether there's actually any any war happening at all uh, is sort of besides the point. That's one of uh, the things that oh, just yeah. terrifies me about this book is that that sense of you can't tell anything. I mean, is Big Brother alive, dead? Has he ever existed? I mean, you get that vertiginous movement towards the end where O'Brien says, "Earth at the center of the universe." You know, mm. uh, we can we can change reality just by talking about it. Um, we absolutely control everything we see, you know, yeah. and, uh, and he makes it so convincing that uh, as I was reading this, I came to this point where, if we want to talk a, a different politics, uh, I realized how you could be a great fundamentalist in America and still use antibiotics. Um, wow. Where they That's say, uh, Stephen Colbert, right? I mean, yeah. it's truthiness. Yeah, it's doublespeak. He says, uh, you know, you can... Um, uh, we... For our purposes, we remember that the Earth is not the center of the, of the universe. You know, when we want to navigate across the seas, we use the stars. Um, oh, we, we can double-think it. Yeah. Right. If we predict an eclipse, uh, do you suppose it beyond us to produce a dual system of astronomy? The stars can be near or distant according to as we need them. Do you suppose our mathematicians are unequal to that? Have you forgotten double-think? Winston mm-hmm. shrank back upon the bed. And I thought, wow, this, this reminds me of the people who say, yeah, the Earth's 4,000 years old, but I'm using a computer in my car as I drive to get my you know, bionic implant and find yeah. antibiotics. What do you think? See, in the book, the proles, they, they seem to have a happier life in a certain sense. They're not as stressed out as, as poor Winston Smith is. Yeah. But on, on the other hand, uh, you know, I... 
this is this this is one of those things I struggle with is is in my life is I don't like to feel uh, contempt for people, but there's a lot of people I ought to feel contempt for given their proclivities. You know, playing the lottery, it's not it's not a good way to spend your time. You're going to die, no, and no. that's not a good way to spend your time. You shouldn't be spending effort, thought. Like if somebody gives me a lottery ticket for a birthday present, I get really depressed. depressed? Not because I, I'm. Well, I, yeah. I get really depressed not because I. I think I'm going to win, and I and I, I think it's unlikely. I get depressed because that means that that person, uh, presumably, they thought that was a good idea when right. they give right. a lottery ticket. Somebody had to deliberately buy that. Thing. Right. No, I hate that. And, I hear you. That's a Paul. You surprised by this? I, no, I was surprised that you were. The reason for your depression, and it's like not, I thought it was going to be all. I'm not going to win, so it was a waste of money. But you, it seems to be you're turning on. On the other person and making it then make it seem that they're they're wasting their time and their money. We, they are, and and it makes me sad to think that 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 that, that is that the, 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 they thought that that would make me happy. Like one one description I heard from one of my profs in university or college, he said, um, "Jesse, you don't understand. They're renting the dream." Mm. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that doesn't make it better. That makes it worse. Okay, so explain what this has to do with the proles. Well, the proles are obsessed by lotteries, right? They spend all their time talking about the lottery. Remember there's that scene where there's a, a buzz bomb comes down and hits, hits London, and he picks up a white, is it a white hand or somebody, somebody's just been killed, and he, he sidles towards a couple of proles. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the lottery. And they're smart. They're 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 good memories. They you know like they're not they're people. They're not they're not yeah. I wouldn't say they're smart, but the no. In, in that in a moment, I mean, uh, Smith notes that they have terrific memories of it. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They can, I hope uh, they feel sorry for the party. I, I've been wondering about this this time when I read the book. Who is who is who is the who is that newspaper for? Is my question, right? Because the proles aren't reading it. It's only for the inner party. What, what's the history? The outer, uh, sorry, the outer party. Hmm. But are they even reading it? What's this? What's all this rewriting of history and text and everything really for in this novel? It doesn't hmm. seem like anybody's really paying attention to that. They're just trying to live day by day, getting in the living through the moment. Oh, the chocolate rations changed down again. The, the victory mm. cigarettes taste like crap. Well, that's no ultimately an- that is ultimately answered though, because when when O'Brien, you know, he asks O'Brien, "Why are you doing this? I'll, I'll, you're going to kill me anyways." He says, "That's the point of power." Right? Oh, is power. You can't really argue with that. <laughs> if you want power, and power is the ability to crush crush people arbitrarily with no no benefit other than the ability to do it. But why not? Why not? No, I, I'm, I'm struggling. With that, that it's answered internally. But, but I mean, th- think of the uh, oh, wishes. I want to say it was uh, Shi Wangzi, the the Chinese emperor who destroyed all those history books. Hmm. Um, because uh, Larry Gonick in Cartoon History of the Universe says, "As school children everywhere cheered," um, but the <laughs> but it was it was you know in part because he wanted to remove all traces of alternative um, patterns of rule, 
you know all their options. Um, yeah, and control. Yeah, um, and it's so. You know, why not just erase all of this? I mean, if if I mean that would also be an exercise of power. I mean, that would mm. be a titanic exercise, and you'd have to keep doing it. You'd have to keep policing all of Oceania to make sure that you don't have any rogue outbreaks of history writing or that someone has squirreled away a, a, a document somewhere. I mean, why? Well, that could, it's, it's the slogan. How does it go? Uh, he who controls the past controls, controls the, the present. And yeah. he who controls the present controls the future. So that actually gets me to a question I was hoping that the three of you might answer. I mean, even if this is a dream logic in the dream world, how stable do we think Oceana and this world is. I mean, is it is, is it really going to be the boot the the boot on the face forever? Is 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 the party mm. destined to stay there for all time? Is it how stable is this dictatorship? What do you guys and Jenny, sorry, think? I think I is gender neutral myself, but <laughs> yeah, me too. It's actually my maiden last name too, so <laughs> yeah, I, cool. I, That's a good question. I would have thought it wouldn't be stable, except for that we know for a fact that it's been going on at least for Winston's whole life. Right. And it has this feeling of self-perpetuation like nothing else. They're, they're so isolated. It's just really hard to tell. I really, I don't understand. Well, sh- and I think if I understood how the pearls fit into everything, um, I would know better because, you know, most dystopias, everyone's stuck in the same rules, the same culture, but it doesn't seem to be the case here. Because you have the two different levels. Yeah, and their their prison system works differently. There's this mention of that. How stable is North Korea? Well, we don't really know. That's right. And imagine you're there, right? You don't really know... You probably have your own thoughts about what you know what's going on uh, there while you're living in this system, but if you've you know uh, there's a really good essay I think I tweeted it or sent it to you guys somehow uh, by uh, Christopher Hitchens about mm-hmm. what it's like to live in North Korea. Yeah, and you know that the, there is a television in in many homes, you know, outer party. People have televisions and radios, but they're tuned only one of two channels, right? The, both state government channels. Yet people there do know that there is an outside world. Uh, it occasionally is announced, you know, that there's an outside world, but their view of it is very constricted. We look at we looking at it say, is it stable? And it, it it'll probably be looking totally stable until it's no longer stable. But that might never. End. I mean, in when humans end, that might end. But there's no reason to think, you know, not the the way 1984 ends. There's no hope. Right. Right. It's totally closed off. It's totally stable in 1984. It seems to me it's it's it, there's no hope at all because the the subversion mechanism has been subverted. Um. What's your impression, yeah. Paul? I, I'd like to think that this dystopia can't hold forever because huma- because even even with Newspeak and Ingsoc and trying to change human behavior, it's it's difficult to change human behavior permanently without genetic or chemical alteration. I mean, this just makes me think of um, uh, stories like, say, Walden Two. Have mm-hmm. any read that? Part of it. 
Uh, or, say, the Philip K. Dick story, going back to Dick, Faith of Our Fathers. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, what a story. We're actually using drugs and other things to control populations. Here, you're just using it by brute force control and surveillance, and I'm not sure that... Yeah, language is... Uh, and, and language, but I'm not yeah. sure that's enough. I'm not sure that's enough to permanently hold down hold down humanity. I mean, one natural disaster, and I think this party this party implodes on itself. It, I mean, if there's nothing outside, you need something outside to break it, but something outside is eventually going to break it. A solar flare, Yellowstone <laughs> erupts, something, and then, and then everything's going to be thrown up in the air, and, this, and the party will be done because it's so rigid and so, so set in that one moment in time. You just need something to break that moment in time, and something eventually is going to come along and do it. Well, it's speaking, getting getting it back to being completely political. Um, what do you think about the argument uh, for North Korea? See, I, I think that North Korea is as close as we're ever going to see to 1984. It has a lot of the things that the that the the Soviet Union had, but it's much more intense um, and more widespread. It's, it's uh, not just for the uh, you know the the people living near the capital. It's for everybody. Well, it's more like the Soviet Union in um, uh, the peaks under Stalin, say in the 30s, and in the uh, or under Mao, China. You know, it's yeah. it's 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 all the worst things, but it's it's intensified. It, it, I'm not a big person in favor of uh, you know going to war, but if if mm-hmm. if you could solve it that way. I think that that'd be great because I this is one of the cases where it's not genocide because it's you know they're already they're all, that's they're they're more into racial purity in in North Korea than anywhere else in the world right yeah uh, there's a little bit of that going on into in South Korea as well but it's you know it's not enforced in the same way that it is in the in the north and it's so nightmarish you know, the axis of evil, if there is evil on Earth, it's happening there. It's most obvious. You know, I think there's an interesting thing that happens in the book, and it doesn't get explored a lot, but I thought we could, and and that is the idea of, is a war really going on? Or is it just the perception of war? Or are they bombing themselves? Right. Are they taking chocolate away because they can't produce it anymore? Or is it really because it needs to go to the soldiers or whatever? You know, I, I feel like if your only information is coming from your government and their goal is to control you, you would never know the difference. Those Where does Julia get all her treats? The inner party. She sleeps with someone there, right? Yeah, that, right. I think that's what's happening. So she right? gets right. real coffee and <laughs> sugar. real chocolate. and Not saccharin, sugar. Right. 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 It feels funny because he's never felt sugar. <laughs> <laughs> so um. somewhere in the world, things are going okay because they're producing these things. Well, again, you can come back to that that point I mentioned earlier about the utopian glimpses within dystopia. Um, but things utopia are is a nice cup of coffee. Well, some days, some days. Um, there's there's this wonderful, unbelievably long book by Ernst Bloch. Bloch was a Marxist theorist who worked with um, guys like Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno in a group called the uh, Frankfurt School. And um, they did all this really groundbreaking uh, theory work in the 30s and 40s. And then after World War II, Bloch uh, returned to Germany and ended up working in East Germany as a culture uh, minister. 
Mm. He's an interesting guy. But this book is called The Principle of Hope, and it's one of the great works of utopian theory. He, he argues that wherever you go in culture, you can find little pieces, little glimpses of hope for a much better world. And he, this book is like 2,000 pages. He just goes through everything he can, like horoscopes, um, weightlifting ads, uh, <laughs> novels, songs, where no matter how awful things can be, especially systematically awful, you can still find these pieces. And he was very political. He said, but the task then uh, for revolutionaries is to coax people into recognizing these and then building upon them. All right, what's missing from your life now, comrade, that would that would you know, prevent you from having this kind of good thing. Um, but I, I, I agree, Jane. There's, there's, there's something great happening, but if there's 100 million people or you know, however many are left in Oceania, you don't need that many to have a couple of kilos of coffee. You, know, you can have a little preserve um, that makes the good things happen. So, yeah, we can. Oh, yeah. So maybe uh, Julia is um, an arm of the party. Is that? Do you think she's playing a role? Well, what is what? We even talked about her. What What do you guys think of her in this book? I don't know. Um, she's the catalyst for everything. So it just makes me wonder. You know, maybe there was a plan. I wasn't too happy with any of the female characters in this book, to be perfectly honest. And yes, I know it's written in the 1940s, but there, there, there seems to... I, I got early on a feeling of almost misogyny in this book in some ways. And talk, and, <laughs> yeah. and I, that feeling never even went away, even after we met. Even I mean, I mean, consider how Winston first reacts to Julie before he gets to know her. And then, I think it's misanthropy rather than misogyny. He wants to it's kill her. Is really? well, yes, but you know, I think I was talking to somebody about this. There, there's a bit of the Nietzschean master morality, slave morality thing going on. Uh-huh. You know, when early on uh, he meets Julia and Julius says, "I want to have sex with you" or whatever it is, he says, "That's great," and uh, I want to beat you up or something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a very misogynistic sounding, but. What happens is she says, I love having sex with men, and I love it not because uh, I love sex, which I do, but it's because it's illicit and it's bad. And, uh-huh. and he says, and I love that you love it, right? I love that, that I, I want you to be dirty. Right. And it's like uh, he, he is not just doing, I mean, well, maybe that's where all of those sort of fetish things come from. But the party thinks something's bad. That means it's good. And for him, that that excitement of political excitement turns into sexual excitement. Yeah, he is saying, "You say this is bad. This party says the party says this is bad. Well, I know they're bad. Therefore, anything that's the opposite of the party has to be good." And that's where both of their, you know, if she is a real character other than him, you know, it isn't all just a dream. If you look at it just as a regular book. And a regular character. At, at one point, uh, by the way, he does say, I have a real body. <laughs> I, it occupies space. I, I will die. And I'm saying, no, you don't. You're a fictional character. Uh, but anyways, that overturning of morality um, is, is so interesting. And yeah. it, it, I think that that's what, I mean, it, if, you, if you look at it just as what he's saying, it sounds very mis- misogynistic. But she's 
um, she is doing it too. I first just I first read this when I was a teenager, and I was really into punk, and and this appealed to me enormously. She says, um, "I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want any virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone to be corrupt to the bones." I'm like, yeah, rock on. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I'm I'm talking about her because I mean uh, on the one hand she's such a sex object. You know she work she produces pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, she's uh, she she's there for sex. You know, she dresses up as a prostitute. I mean that's how it's set up, right? Prostitutes dress like this, then she does. Um, and then he has this line. What does he say? You're you're only revolutionary below the waist. Right. right? Yeah. Um, but, it, it, but she is right. She's not interested in anything that isn't. Uh, <laughs> she falls she's asleep. not politically interested. When he's, yeah. when he's reading Goldstein, her, she falls asleep. That's right. She's she's like, oh, you got that book? That's nice. But uh, the reason I'm torn about this is uh, is is the flip side is is partly what she does and partly the tradition. I mean, what she does, the first thing she sends him that note, I love you. Yeah. My God, what a what a coup de théâtre! What a what a shock! Right? Not. Hey, let's snuggle. But no, I yeah. love you. And and she does all this other stuff around it. You know, that's 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 the the love around sex. But also there's she's the dream girl. <laughs> well, she might be the she's almost the insofar as the world 1984 goes. Maybe she's a magic yeah. pixie dream girl, right? Um, yeah. But also there's there's a tradition of in dystopias of the romantic couple um, that destroys or brings down the the uh, revolution. Well, that brings down the bad order. I mean, this this is that's V for Vendetta too. V for Vendetta. Uh, this is this is Hunger Games, um, but it goes further back. Uh, Percy Shelley has this very strange, awesome book-length poem called "The Revolt of Islam," which is about a a tyrannical Middle Eastern regime and uh, this incestuous couple that seeks to overthrow it. It's it's a it's a beautiful, weird book. I mean, it's. I don't know if you guys ever read it. It's 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 hard going at times, but everything by Shelley is awesome. But but it's a it's a it's a the the act of sex, the act of romantic coupling helps bring this whole thing down. That's what happens in We in Zemiatin, right? It's a uh, I ninety and wait I three thirty and O ninety, right? They're the couple that sets it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's really uh, we were watching Pacific Rim last week, um, having a lot of fun. And one of the things that occurred to us was that there was no romantic plot at all. Huh. There's a there's a slight glimpse when one character gazes lustfully at another through huh. a keyhole, literally, and the yep. door closes, literally, to stop it from happening. Um, but that's because there's no possibility of revolution. The order is tyrannical, but just. Um, here, I mean, the, the the romantic couple. That's that's the source that brings it down. That's um, the Matrix, the first Matrix movie, the great mm-hmm. one. Um, it's the romantic couple that saves the day. Their coupling is what makes it all happen. That's what brings mm-hmm. Neo into the world, into the real world, and that's mm-hmm. what saves his life at the end. Right? The movie Equilibrium. Uh, the, loss, the loss of his the loss of his wife is the first spark in the characters mm-hmm. turning mm-hmm. against the state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean that's and then Orwell's open about this. Um, he says you know that there's this there's something the party can't control. Um, and and part of it's sexual. There's this Freudian argument that I'd forgotten about. Where but you you notice that in every every one of the examples you've cited, that that the the order does come down right in V for Vendetta. That's the difference between V for Vendetta and and mm-hmm. this is is that the 
there is mm-hmm. a destruction of the old not order. Not in not in uh, in Zimnaten, not in Weed. That's true. Remember that terrifying last line. Because reason must prevail. I mean, doesn't he watch her get tortured to death at the end? Ah, oh, God. What a book. Um, and, you know, the uh, or you think of um, Huxley. Does that one have a book? I don't remember. Is there a book inside of uh, inside uh, of We? There are stories. I'd have to go grab a copy and find it. I don't no, I don't think there was like a central book. No, right? I think sort of everything revolved around. There's a myth. Um, they talk about Mephistopheles, but that's that's it. Right. Yeah. Um, but also, the uh, Brave New World has all these romances, and they all end badly. And the order Mustafa Mon's regime continues. Right. I mean, it's the it's the only chance of of a rebellion to succeed is to have that romantic couple be the spark of it. Um, and I, I guess the thing that worries me is that Julia doesn't feel like a, a, a total character. I mean, the first time we see her name, um, the first, I mean, she's always the dark-haired girl, you know, the dark girl, the girl. Do we ever learn her last name? No. And when we first see the name, it's, what is your name? Julia. I know yours. It's Winston, Winston Smith. How'd you find that out? I expect I'm better at finding out things than you are, dear. <laughs> yep. Hmm. Yeah, I I thought she was in on it with O'Brien. I, I I've read the book before, but I thought she was in on it this time. <laughs> when I was reading <laughs> Dark World, she, she's working with O'Brien. <laughs> yeah, but it's we, all a plan to bring down Winston. Yeah, but we do see her at the end where she, where he sees her the yeah. one last time, and she does look kind of broken. So I'm not. She's, uh, yeah, uh, she's described right as like more like that that prole lady who was out the window. Uh, right. right. So if she's working with O'Brien, then you used her to destroy well, one person? I know person? she's not in on it, but I, I was thinking, like, up to, I'd read it before, and I remember she wasn't in on it, but it, it's like just some of the things that, the way it's, you know, where'd she get those those bags of coffee? Okay. Where'd the I, I got to read this. I got to read this, because this is just, oh, this is so hard. So much of the book is about nature, right? I mean, the nature good, nature being sweet or nature being corrupted. And we begin with April, right? Uh, and we have them going out to the golden hour together. So mm-hmm. when, oh, when he sees her, this is so awful. It was by chance they'd met. It was in the park on a vile, biting day in March, when the earth was like iron and all the grass seemed dead, and there was not a bud anywhere except a few crocuses, which had pushed themselves up to be dismembered by the wind. <laughs> then they Here's get together. Again, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Presently, they were in a clump of ragged, leafless shrubs, Useless either for concealment or for protection from the wind. They halted. It was vilely cold. The wind whistled through the twigs and fretted the occasional dirty looking crocuses. He put his own. You, you, the way you're reading it, you're really making it obvious. <laughs> well, you, you have to because that whole last chapter is so yeah. overwhelming. Um, but also, again, it's, it's March, the sense of sterility. There's your. It's not just the boot stepping at a human face forever, it's the dead nature. Nature has been overwritten and hacked forever. Um, and that's where he puts his arm around her waist. I mean, oh, oh, God. Um, I don't know. I, the, the best example, to answer your question, uh, Paul, about could this last forever, the closest thing I could come to would be either the Byzantine Empire, which lasted for about a thousand years, uh, or the rule of the Catholic Church in, in Europe, which lasted for about 1,100 years. Um, I mean, neither, both were as absolute as the times permitted, 
you know, based on technology and, and social technology. Uh, both are ultimately uh, defeated. Um, but this, this world, I could see this lasting for a long time um, because it's so, it's so successful. It, one of the things that makes it like so North Korea is is a like traditional Mao Stalin sort of dictatorship, but it's it's generated a dynasty you know handing down to, from father to son the the story. But the difference is in 1984, Big Brother is not a man. He's not a man that lives and dies. Right. He is a he's like an Iduru, right? Exactly. You know, those Japanese mm, exactly. uh, created fictional things that can exist mm-hmm. independent of real people. And in that sense, it, there's no, like a lot of the time, one of the reasons the Catholic church could last that long is because it doesn't have, it has an adoption policy rather than a uh, inheritance policy, right? right? You join the church. You are not, you bear no children. Gen- you're supposed to not have any children if you're the Pope, right? You're not supposed to give your job to the right. your, your children. Um, and the idea there is that it, that will make it, well, even if it's not the idea, it continues because of that. Right. And in the world of Big Brother, you know, the guy with the big mustache with the, with the, and what kind of smile does he have underneath it? We find out at the end it's a, it's a, uh, an embracing smile, like a mother to a breast, yeah. right? Or yeah. a child to a mother's breast, right? Um, it's not a mean smile. It's not a happy smile. It's a it's a, a knowing smile, maybe. <laughs> um, that that means it could go on forever, and he could, ch- you know, he can. I've seen some versions of Big Brother where he's not. He doesn't have a mustache. The one from the 1984 movie, I think, is is beautiful. It's really what shows. I don't know who the, the 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 model is for the photo, but he's just for the uh, the BBC one. Or no, the, no, the, the one from 84, 84. Yeah, 84. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The weirdest thing about that movie is that the soundtrack is by the Eurythmics, which just it it, it gets less bad with time, but it, it's so huh. ill suited. It doesn't. <laughs> Um, that's weird. <laughs> it's very eighties. <80s>. I know. <laughs> Mind you, I guess that's kind of appropriate for the time. Well, right? in the time though, I mean, there were all these in in 1984. There were all these discussions of you know, all right, how close are we? And I, I remember, um, I remember some commentators saying, well, you know, we've got the Cold War going on, and so we've got two giant, you know, blocks of power. You know, not dissimilar, but everyone said, well, you know, I'm nostalgic for the Cold War. Yeah, and it shows there was a real, there was a real enemy back when we had the Cold War. Remember? Yeah. Remember back then when we were always at war with East Asia? Always. Always. Um, now, now, who are we at war with? We're at, uh, at war with adjectives and nouns. Or <laughs> at war with parts of speech. Abstract nouns, terrorism. Which means it can last as long as we like. That's right. You know, the Apple, the famous Apple 1984 commercial. Oh, that's so ironic now, right? I know. <laughs> I know. The irony is so strong. Well, if you want, you could make it. You destroyed it, and now it is it. You could, you could, if you want to really be um, shocking, you could make a link between that and uh, the, the embrace that Americans have of the NSA, depending on whose party is in charge, right? Um, there was a Gallup poll. You guys saw that a couple months ago. They said they, they pulled in the U.S. 2006, 2007, and asked, "Do you support the NSA surveillance?" And at that time, it was like 60 to 80 percent of Republicans said yes, and 30 percent of Democrats said no. So they repeated the same poll last month, 
And it was hmm. 60% of Democrats said yes. And 50% of Republicans said no. You know, it was, it was like this pretty transparent, you know, we're, we're against it unless it's our party doing it, right? So you could think about the Apple fans who, you know, supported the uh, Apple Macintosh in 1984 and, you know, now are happy to have their walled garden of, what was it called in the commercial? Perfect surveillance, perfect information. Mm-hmm. Um, perfect, yeah, total information awareness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we love that uh, if, if, it's, mm-hmm. if it's our side doing it. Um, See, maybe, that, maybe that's the success of, of Oceania, is that they've, they've got the fan base secured. There was a, a really interesting theory I was heard about, um, saying that, that Britain had maneuvered, uh, maneuvered the United States into attacking Iraq. Uh, back in uh, when Bush when Bush was doing it, it wasn't that Tony Blair was on side with with Bush. It was that Bush was on side with oh, Tony Blair. Oh, so Bush was and, Blair's and that, poodle. Uh-huh. That's right, and that that the British have somehow figured out a way to control the world using their empire in the same way that uh, you know Airstrip One was 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 Britain. So it's like a reversal because the Americans are now doing the British Empire. I see. Which is, which makes it a little more prescient and a little more there's a, scary. There's George Bernard Shaw uh, drama where um, the U.S. rescinds the Declaration of Independence uh, and rejoins the British Empire um, ah. and, and ends up purchasing the whole thing. Um, but they, they missed all the, all the you know, aristocratic style. Listen, I, I had one last question to ask um, about the sure. book. Do we have time more? Yeah. Uh, we talked about technological science fiction and social science fiction. Um, could we consider 1984 to be work of political science fiction? Yes, absolutely. Sure, we can call it that. Uh, I think social science fiction is political science fiction, sure. So <laughs> society and politics are the same thing. Well, I think. That's a whole other discussion, Jesse. It, it oh. is. I. I think they're the exact... Uh, I think that we could collapse the words down into... You know, they're just... Politics is the is is when you have two people or more, right? You have you know relation, power relationships. I was thinking the reason I wanted to distinguish the two is is partly the putative subject, but also the uh, I was thinking about the science fiction written about the Vietnam War, and there's a lot of it. There's actually a couple of good anthologies, and a lot of that seems to be, and most of it's anti-Vietnam War, although there's actually some pro. Um, <laughs> in fact, if you want, there's a great ad or two-page ad in Galaxy Magazine, 1968. Um, I don't know if it's on the web somewhere, uh, where it was uh, one, um, one was a petition against the war, and signed by science fiction authors. And the facing page is a petition to keep the war going, signed right. by science fiction. Timeline on one side, and uh, I don't know, Joe Haldeman on the other? <laughs> yeah, basically. And, and, but it was like 40. On, you know, on one side you had Philip K. Dick, Ursula Le Guin, Isaac Asimov, and then the other side, I mean, it was like you had R.A. Lafferty in support of the war. I mean, it was a real nice snapshot. So you, know, you think about it, but that's, that's about it. I mean, there's stories like uh, Judith Merrill has this story, it was a response to American war atrocities in Vietnam, where a, uh, an, Amer- a, um, an American troop goes through uh, Ohio and uh, treats small towns like they treat hamlets in uh, in Vietnam, um, and there's a you know there's of course um, the Forever War. You know, Haldeman was a Vietnam vet. His first book was about Vietnam. Um, I mean, these all seem to me where the it's it's not so much 
the, the focus isn't so much the, the, the depiction of a society like, say, mm, you know, left-hand darkness, right? You know, what does a world look like when you've got this sexuality uh, redefined? Mm. Um, but more like the political. Yeah, it's, it's more on the political than the let's experimental. And it, it, it's, you know, you can trace, and that sort of makes it feel like a lot less science fiction. You can trace the the real world connections to all the precedents for everything that's happening. I, it, in that sense, it's it's more like Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. You know, it's mm. it's very you can just connect it up with things that are happening in the world, either in you know the Japanese uh, Secret Service or the uh, you know the Maoist uh, young communists, uh, no young pioneers. You know, mm-hmm. everything can be connected up um, in that way, and it. And because of that, it feels extremely. Yeah, the pioneers awful. were the Soviet one. They're also called the Young Octoberists. They have, they still have them in China, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they do wear a red, a red um, uh, neckerchief. But China has a different issue of sex. Uh, well, no, I don't think. I think they're chastity right until until you have the the one child policy that's what but that's enough. for older, older kids right um well unless I, you're rich in which in which case you can you can pay the penalty or in the party um i yeah. guess no no you still have to pay the penalty but actually it, it, i mean china is not as dystopic as as you know any way as it used to be it used to be a right. nightmare now right. it's it's very very I mean, you could live there. <laughs> but that's the story I, I, that they're I, selling. People live in the United States, too. I, I don't know. Well, it's, I, it's, it's different because like, it's a hybrid communist-capitalist idea. They, um, I've, I've been told by some friends of mine who visit when they, when they talk with Chinese officials, they'll say, thank you for um, uh, capitalism. Really cool idea. We fixed <laughs> it for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, see, the problem was having two parties was, was the mistake. There you right? go, there you go. But having four parties on this call has been a great deal of fun for me. Um, I'm, I'm really, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I can't believe it's almost two hours. Uh, it feels like we've just been, uh, we've just sat down to, to talk about this awesome book. This is a book you could read again and again. We could do it again next year if we had to. <laughs> we've only scratched the surface. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.